This morning in America, welcome back. Michael Rubin is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, senior lecturer at the Naval Postgraduate School, and author of Dancing with the Devil. Michael, good morning. Good morning, Bill. Uh, there are at least two pieces you've written. We have, we'll have a link up to both of them for our audience at BillBennett.com. Uh, why the Saudis can get away with murder, uh, uh, zero tolerance on embassy sackings. Tell us what happened here uh, and why it's important and significant, and then tell us whose side we're on, if any. Well, let me put it this way. First of all, there's no angels in the story. Okay. Saudi Arabia decided, had arrested a couple years ago uh, Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr, who was perhaps the most prominent Shiite cleric in eastern Saudi Arabia. Many people say that he was a pacifist, that he had simply been urging nonviolence when many of the Saudi Shiites in the eastern province, that's where most of the oil is produced in Saudi Arabia, rose up in protest against the very real discrimination which they feel in Saudi Arabia. You know, when we talk about the Bahrain sectarian problems and the Bahrainis cracking down on the majority Shiites, the Bahrainis use rubber bullets, the Saudis use live ammunition. There's other things going on here, though. Saudi Arabia's economy is in a really bad situation right now as the price of oil plummets. Now, Saudi Arabia has recently passed an austerity bill and it seems that the execution of Sheikh Nimr, and this is what isn't in the press, was in a way time to distract from the fact that many Saudis are going to would otherwise be talking about the austerity bill and the decline in the economy. Oh. So it looks like there's some some Machiavellianism going on here. It's a little bit, like, other... little bit like what Putin does, right? Things are bad and made a country, huh? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And when we look at the crown prince, who's also the interior minister, his name is Mohammed bin Naif, he's known as one of the most sectarian-oriented um, figures in Saudi Arabia. He's also important because traditionally, the mo- in the monarchy of Saudi Arabia, we've gone from brother to brother, which worked well when they were in their 50s. Now that they're in their 80s and 90s, yeah. it's not a great deal of stability. Well, Mohammed bin Naif is the first of the next generation. He's a relative spring chicken in his 50s, and therefore um, he's already solidifying his grip. King Salman has Alzheimer's or dementia, and therefore the crown prince already seems to be in control. So he wanted to pick this fight with the Shiites, and I'm not sure it's a fight he can win. Um, it's simply going to cause a great deal of chaos. That said, um, Sheikh Nimr may not have been the angel which some depict right, him as. Right. Joseph Browdy at the Foreign Policy Research this, Institute in Philadelphia right. has pointed out he belonged to a Hezbollah-like group uh, that had fealty to Iran. He had agreed to an amnesty in the 1990s, but he had broken that when... Um, According to Browdy and some of Sheikh Nimr's friends, he started calling for a much more militant reaction. Long story short, um, were it a sectarian crisis that now involves the leadership of Saudi Arabia, the supreme leader of Iran, and the fact that the Iranians are sacking embassies again, that's something, no matter whether the Saudis are in the right or wrong, that's something that simply cannot be tolerated. It's not a tool of statecraft, and the more the Iranians get away with this, the more that just encourages them to do it again. Are we lending any support to our sometimes, I guess, supposed ally, Saudi Arabia, though we disapprove of a lot of what they're doing, some of which you've reviewed also, they export a lot of terrorism, right? I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of money that supports terrorism. It's still true, right? Well, absolutely. No, that, that is still true, although the Saudis 
have gotten much more responsible about cracking okay. down on the financing ever since they started um, facing blowback. A lot right. of your listeners remember the movie The Kingdom, which was about this. Right. So it wasn't after 9-11, but after a couple years later, okay. they started getting much more serious. But are they still, they're still an ally, theoretically, right? But, they, they are still an ally. But they're very upset with us about our deal with Iran, correct? They're absolutely upset with us about our deal with Iran, as are many of the countries in the region. Okay, and so what happens now? So they uh, they kill all the, well, these people, including this Nimer guy, and then uh, the Iranian uh, Iran sacks uh, their embassy, right? Sacks the Saudi embassy in Tehran. Um, uh, not justifiable, as you said. We have an essay there by Michael that we'll put up a link to the site. But um, what happens next? Um, let me tell you what I know or thought. I, I probably raised this with you before. I'm sure I have. I remember a discussion we had with, I think it was Bing West, others about the Saudis and the Iranians and the tensions between them. And there was some talk at some point about Saudis having conversations, you can help me here, Michael, with the Pakis, Pakistanis, about nuclear weapons. And somebody said, oh, they probably have one already. Are, are Are we seeing possible beginnings of major escalation, major uh, conflict between Iran and Saudi, and then, again, what do we do if so? Well, the short end, I don't think they yet have a a nuclear weapon, but the concern always is that Saudi Arabia would buy one off the shelf. Um, The way this is going to escalate is the the Iranians aren't going to hesitate to try to smuggle in weaponry into eastern Saudi Arabia, where you do have a majority of the Shiite population. Okay. That's number one. The Iranians have already put out word, uh, the Revolutionary Guard and so forth, suggesting that perhaps in revenge for, for killing Sheikh Nimr, um, the Iranians should start assassinating Saudi princes, and that's going to lead to a major escalation. You know, when, when the Iranians condemn Saudi Arabia for killing 147 people last year, it's kind of rich considering that in the first six months of last year, the Iranians killed more than 700, so their rate is exponentially higher, on top of which when the Iranian President Hassan Rouhani laments the lack of religious freedom, that's very, very rich considering that he's holding an American Christian for the crime of being a Christian, that he's imprisoned Baha'is, that he hasn't come clean on the missing Jews case that goes back decades. I mean, ultimately, we see a whole lot of hypocrisy, but the Iranians are posturing, and it seems that the White House is engaged in a not-so-delicate game of moral equivalence, rather than recognizing that when both sides have done ill, that at the very least, in order to deconflict, we need to show that we're not putting our allies out to dry. And that ally would be Saudi Arabia, not Iran. In this case, it would be Saudi Arabia. That doesn't mean you don't sanction Saudi Arabia. It doesn't mean you turn a blind eye, for example, to the fact that on the United Nations Human Rights Council, Saudi Arabia took the leadership of one of the most important panels with regard to credentialing. And frankly, the United Nations and the European Union need to do some serious inward focus on why it is that they allowed Saudi Arabia to get this promotion, because all it does is convince Saudi Arabia that they can get away with murder, and indeed that's what they tried to do. All right, we're talking to Michael Rubin. He's the author. He started by saying we're not dealing with angels here. He would know about this. He's the author of the book Dancing with the Devil. We've got some uh, uh, serious uh, evil going on here. But nevertheless, the Saudis are our ally in ways, and our ally, and Iran is not. So it's clear whose side we're on while we have to condemn what Saudi did, correct? What- That's correct, but you say it's clear. And I would say it's clear. And in the White House, they probably assume it's clear, Bill. 
But, you know, so many people in the region have been so disappointed in the United States over the last uh, several years that everyone assumes we're supporting the other side. The Saudis believe we're supporting the Iranians. The Iranians okay. believe we're supporting the Saudis, and we end up getting hit by both. Okay. What effect does this have with the effort against ISIS, uh, first in Syria, uh, second in Iraq? Well, Iraq is caught in the middle, and that's the tragedy. I mean, Saudi Arabia had just opened an embassy in Iraq. That was a major step that wasn't really reported in the Western newspapers. The Iranians are going to be pressuring the Iraqis in to, to crack down on Saudi Arabia to close that. That's not something that Iraqis want to do. In Saudi Arabia, many people say that this that the Saudi timing of the execution of Sheikh Nimr was meant to drive a wedge into Secretary of State John Kerry and Vladimir Putin's plan to allow Assad to stay, that this was meant to double down on the sectarian warfare. And in many ways, this is what I fear with um, Secretary of State John Kerry. Sometimes he comes up with these formulas that sound good when he's sitting in Vienna or drinking coffee in some five-star hotel, but the reality on the ground is he doesn't seem to understand the dynamics. He doesn't understand the situation. And while he is directly not personally responsible, the result is someone pours fuel on the fire. Will, double question. And folks, you can get in on this, 866-680-6464. We'll keep Michael another segment. Michael, you can stay, right? Absolutely, sure. Uh, will Saudi Arabia start backing ISIS uh, as uh, retaliation, uh, ISIS in Iraq or elsewhere? Uh, we rely on uh, Iran's Shia militias to take out ISIS in uh, in Iraq, right? What effect will this have? Well, you know, Bill, the problem here is that when it comes to terrorism, there is no international definition of it. There's more than 250 definitions in play. So the net effect is every country in the region will say that they're fighting terrorism, including Saudi Arabia, including Iran. Okay. But they define terrorism as uh anyone who engages in terrorism except for a cause with which we agree. I don't think the Saudis are going to go as far as the Qataris and the Turks do in supporting the Islamic State, but certainly there's other shades of quote-unquote moderate who are actually quite radical that the Saudis might uh, start to to throw fuel in the fire. And remember, 11% of Iran's population, especially in the southeast and the north, um, and the Northwest are Sunni, and so I think it's much more likely that the Saudis are going to start supporting terrorists and insurgencies inside Iran. Okay, uh, and I see. Okay, and the Iranians, uh, what, what, what will they do other than uh, destroy the embassy of Saudi well, Arabia? Oh, they'll support the, they'll support the Shia in Saudi Arabia. Well, they support the Shia in Saudi, and already, I mean, remember. Back in 1996, we had the Kobar Towers bombing in eastern Saudi Arabia. That was with a Saudi Hezbollah group. That's the same sort of Hezbollah group, which the Saudis say that in his younger days, Sheikh Nimr had been part of, not necessarily the same exact group. But I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of uh, the Iranians sponsor some sort of Hezbollah group in Saudi Arabia. And at the same time, we started seeing death to Saudi signs and so forth. And okay. what we always forget in the White House is this isn't mere rhetoric. The Iranians are the largest state sponsor of terrorists, and if they can try to assassinate Israeli diplomats, if they can blow up Jewish community centers, they can also go after Saudis worldwide. Heck, they tried to kill the Saudi ambassador in Washington, D.C. That's the type of thing we need to be worried about. It's morning in America. Welcome back. Uh, Michael Rubin stays with us. Michael, uh, for folks, we got an open line or two. Eight six 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 eight zero. If you have a question, uh, hang on. Eight six. Let me finish. Be in such a rush. 
866-680-6464. You went in a rush, just give half the phone number, right? 866-680-6464 if you want to talk to Michael Rubin. All right, President Obama calls you this afternoon or Thursday before his uh, gun summit, uh, his town hall, and says, what should I do here? What, what, what actions should I take? What message do I deliver to Iran? What message do I deliver to Saudi Arabia? And who else do I call? Okay, let's put aside the fact that everyone in the region sees Obama as a lame duck. What I would say is, number okay. one, with Saudi so they're Arabia... So they're not going to take him that seriously anyway. Right. But wow. you go, first okay. of all, with regard to Saudi Arabia, you say, I mean, you condemn it unequivocally, much better than you did yesterday, and then you go to the United Nations Human Rights Council or Commission or whatever it's called now, and you say that unless Saudi Arabia is removed from this leadership position, all funding is going to be cut off. Remember, the United States under the Bush administration had withdrawn support for the Human Rights Council because they, sacked it, they said it lacked legitimacy, and this is and it does once again when the murderers are in charge, when the foxes are in charge of the hen house. That's number one. With regard to, um, to Iran, number one, you demand that Iran pay the compensation to Saudi Arabia to rebuild the embassy. Number two, you try to rally the Europeans and the Arab states to withdraw their, to close their embassies inside Iran until people are brought to justice for the sacking of the embassy. Because again, it wasn't just the American embassy. It's now been the French embassy, the British embassy, the German embassy, and the Danish embassy over the years. And as long as Iran is allowed to get away with this, 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 this sacking of sovereign territory is going to continue. Uh, Michael, uh, you know, uh, in addition to what's happened here, we have also in the background, and not too long ago, we have these Iranian nuclear, uh, I'm sorry, these uh, missile tests by Iran. Uh, Do we say anything about the deal uh, to Iran, the uh, deal that we've made, or is that just uh, something that the Obama administration won't touch? Well, the Obama administration won't touch it. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't touch it. The fact of the matter is the United Nations Security Council resolution, offhand I think it's like 2231, which was put in place to um, to sort of codify the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, that's the so-called Iran deal, and update the situation now that the Iranian nuclear file was closed, had absolutely forbidden the um, the war, Iran's work on advanced ballistic missiles, especially those which could carry nuclear weapons, which these can. Therefore, the fact that we are not sanctioning Iran not only allows Iran to get out with a clear violation, but frankly, it encourages further violations. Secretary of State John Kerry and President Obama may think they're saving the Iran deal, but what they're really doing is condemning it to history, because Iran's strategy is also always cheat around the edges, and if you can get away with that, then then cheat on the um, on the bulk of the issue, and that's what we're yeah. starting to see. My concern is that their you know their overriding interest in keeping this deal will perhaps limit uh, you know the the effectiveness and the propriety of their response to Iran. Well, you know, that's what the Iranians are counting on. If, if Obama and Kerry were wiser, they would say, hey, look, you've got to abide by this now because what comes next isn't going to be as friendly. But instead, they seem so caught up in their yeah. desire for legacy, they're, they're acting out of desperation. Let me uh, just uh, shift theaters uh, slightly here. We've read a lot in the last uh, few days about um, Ramadi and that uh, the Iraqis have retaken Ramadi or at least uh, most of it. Um, do you think that's true? The reason I'm asking you is I'm just having a 
what we used to call a credibility gap when I saw that the president was yelling at the Pentagon saying we're not doing a good enough job talking about our successes and our allies' successes. So now I'm not sure I believe anything. Uh, what is your, I mean, you, you, you've been to all these places, you know people. Uh, has there been success in Ramadi? Well, there absolutely has. They captured the center of Ramadi, but ISIS is still in control of about 30% of the city, so talk about full liberation is a lot, little bit outdated, but I think Ash Carter is just a little bit more cautious and wise, because you remember when when uh, Iraqi forces, in this case Kurdish forces with U.S. air power, uh, and Syrian Kurdish forces helped capture uh, or recapture Sinjar, from the Islamic State, President Obama came out and said the Islamic State were contained. And after that, of course, the same day, we had the Paris attacks. I don't think the Pentagon wants to get caught up in that, but the White House tends to look at all this through the lens of politics rather than through the lens of perspective and caution. Does this give us any grounds for more confidence in the Iraqi military? Does it, have they made a breakthrough here? Well, you know, I think Ash Carter, the Secretary of Defense, was wildly unfair last year when he said that the Iraqi army lacked the will to fight because they had been fighting there for six to eight months. They didn't have the U.S. air power, which sometimes the Kurds have. Um, that said, you know, we should have confidence in them. We do need to have a serious discussion about the popular mobilization forces, the so-called hostile shabi, which are these Shiite volunteers, okay. and how we're going to integrate them. And at the same time, there needs to be a broader discussion about how you're going to integrate the Sunni areas back into Iraq. All right. Thank you. I, I just, you know, I take, come away from this saying, thinking of you saying, well, remember, no matter what we do, if they view the president as a lame duck, which he is, and he's really a lame, lame duck. And second, you know, we're, we can't take the action we want because we've got to save this bad deal. Terrible. Absolutely. Terrible. Thanks, Michael. Stay close, please, for our sake. Thank you very much.